honor and reverence to the reading of the Word of God. And um, we'll look at a few verses here. Begin reading in verse number 9. This is where we've been for the past few weeks. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul." Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Thank you for standing. You can be seated tonight. And we're going to continue to work through these verses on the thought of the church is bigger than you think. And this is message number three tonight that we are looking at here. And so far, we've looked at the main points being our position. Uh, we find that in verse, uh, the first part of verse number nine. Our position is that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, unholy nation, a peculiar people. As a matter of fact, we are very similar in Christ to what the nation of Israel is and we know that the nation of Israel has always been God's chosen people. They still are his chosen people. He is not finished with them yet. There is a theology out there that is called replacement theology. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. There's plenty of uh, writers out there, plenty of preachers and pastors and theologians that believe that uh, the nation of Israel in God's eyes has been replaced by the church. And I don't see that in the Word of God. I cannot see that. I see the similarities there, but if you study the book of Revelation, you know that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. They still have a very special part in um, the the age, if you will, or the, the time, and, and even in future time, they have a very special role in the end days of the end of time, and so I don't see how they could be replaced knowing all of that. But anyways, we are, uh, we do have our position here in the first part of verse number nine, and then we also have a purpose. That was the second thing that we looked at. We have a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, it is that we should show forth the praises of him who has or who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which leads us to not only is that our purpose, but then we have our past, which was or which is in verse number 10, uh, where the Bible says, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So we see our past right there. And then tonight we're going to look at verse number 11 and verse number 12 in our study tonight. Now, these verses are all about what we are as a church. And church is bigger than we think it is. Uh, so many people 
think that church is just something you do because you were raised to go to church. Mama and daddy went to church. Grandma and grandpa went to church. And getting saved is, honestly, I know where we're at. We're in the Bible Belt tonight. And in the Bible Belt, people look at church like they do sweet tea. It's just something that's found in the South. And and this is what we do, but uh, some people look at it, honestly, as just another thing to cross off their bucket list. Well, uh, before I die, I need to be saved. And that's how they look at it. But the church is bigger than any of that. It's bigger than what most people think that it is. And much of what, and here's the thing, much of what most people do in Christianity looks nothing like it does in the Bible. As a matter and a fact, in our churches today, I was listening to a man preach today, and he said, uh, he, he was preaching on uh, Genesis chapter number three and how the serpent beguiled Eve into, uh, into eating that forbidden fruit and, of course, uh, giving it to Adam. And when Adam ate of it, uh, of course, he sold the whole of humankind into the slavery of sin. And something he said really struck me, and I hadn't thought much about it, but he said that as he was going through what the serpent did or what the devil did to entice Eve, uh, one of the things was, and you've heard me talk about it several times, is how, is how, um, is how he, he said he questioned the Word of God, he twisted the Word of God, and then the big one was, Thou shalt not surely die. He, he looked at her and said, oh, you're not going to die. As a matter of fact, God knows that when you eat of that fruit, you'll become as gods, knowing good and evil. And so what Satan appealed to was the fact that Eve, he was appealing to her ego and her uh, self, uh, the desire to be sovereign over oneself. You see, the idea there is that she would be independent of God and she would be as God. And that's what we see in our society today. Now, the scary thing is, and what he brought out is simply this. He said, he said how many of the mainstream churches today are, are setting around teaching and preaching uh, that we can all come together on the love of God? And so, well, it's okay. God loves you. God loves you anyways. God accepts you and God loves you. He said, it sounds a whole lot to me like the same message that the serpent beguiled Eve with. And he said, the sad thing is, is it's a message being preached in many churches today. And so... This is, this is the problem. What people need to do and what there is such a necessity of today is to take your Bible and see if your life matches up to what the Bible says it should. Many people, if they read the Word of God, would see that what they call Christianity or what they view or perceive as Christianity is nothing like what the Bible explains that it is. They would see that their lives look nothing like what the Bible says they should look like. And so, tonight we're looking at the third part, digging into God's Word a little bit about what the church is. 
And as what I mean by the church, we're of course talking about the believers, the body of Christ as the church, but also we're talking about church. And so I've already talked about a lot of that in the past couple weeks, but let's get on with our study tonight. In verse number 11, I want you to notice right off the bat, we have our position, we have our purpose, we have our past, but then we also see in verse 11 our pilgrimage. Look at, uh, look here, our, our Christian life is a process. It is a pilgrimage. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And the goal is that we finish. It's not about perfection. Go back just a couple weeks ago when I, when I started looking at some of this. and It's not about perfection. It's about progress. Are you growing? Are you, are, you, uh, are you running that race that you ought to be? And Hebrews 12 puts it like this. It says, Wherefore, seeing we, are also, uh, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This life as a Christian is a marathon. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. That is the goal. That's the goal. The goal is to finish. Now, Peter, he's discussed, going back to the first part of the chapter, he, he has discussed separation by birth. And he has uh, discussed... Uh, separation by belief and now he is turning to separation by behavior and you know sooner or later and this is what a lot of churches don't realize and a lot of Christ, so-called christians don't realize sooner or later there has to be a practical side of all divine truth in other words we are saved by birth, we're separated by birth by the new birth, by being saved, by, by being accepted by Jesus and, and, and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but then there's separation by belief. We have doctrines that we uphold. And then uh, the practical side of all the divine truth is uh, also obedience. It always goes to something we do or something we don't do. And that's where we're at tonight. Look in verse number 11. First off, before we get into this, I want you to notice a compassionate reminder. The first two words of verse 11 say, Dearly beloved. And you know, before I get into this, I just want to say never forget that God loves you. He does. Everything God asks us to do is motivated by His love for us. We may question the motives of people, but listen, you never have to question the motives of God because everything He does or everything He asks us to do is also always wrapped in His marvelous and eternal love for us. And Jeremiah 31.3 says this, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Now listen, when trials come, and they're going to come, when tribulation comes, and it is going to come, remembering that God allows what He does, or remembering that God allows what He does in His love will help us get through it. 
And so the first thing we see here is a compassionate reminder, but look on, we find a clear requirement. After he says, dearly beloved, he says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Now that word beseech, it's a tender word. It means to call to one's side in a tender way, to comfort, to instruct, to beg, to encourage, to exhort, or to strengthen. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for beseech is also the word that we uh, derive the word for Holy Spirit from. And of course, Holy Spirit is our comforter, the Bible tells us. And Jesus told his disciples if he didn't go away, then the comforter would not come. And so this word beseech, it's a, it's, a, it's a tender word. And in this section, Peter is about to share with us some important and some difficult duties assigned to every Christian. Now notice, first of all, that he refers to us as strangers and pilgrims. This clarifies our attitude and our position in the world. We are strangers, the Bible says. We've got a major issue and a lot of the, the, the reasons or a lot of the problems that we see in our churches today and with people is simply this. And I've heard old preachers say this for a long time. I think my daddy has said it as long as I've been alive. He said the major problem is there's a bunch of so-called Christians that are driving their tent pegs way too deep in the ground of this earth. What am I trying to say about that? We're way too at home in this earth. We're way too comfortable. Uh, the Bible says we are strangers. Now that word means a foreigner, a resident alien, one who lives in a place without citizenship. So how fitting is this word for believers? How fitting that word is in describing believers. Paul states that our, or, or Paul stated that our citizenship is not here, it is in heaven. That is the place of our final home. Our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20, he's, uh, the Bible says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, this world is not home. We are just passing through here. And we are temporary dwellers down here. We have no permanent residence here. I'm just visiting the planet. Yes. A stranger is a person who is away from their home. And a pilgrim, he says we are strangers and pilgrims. So get this, a stranger is a person who is away from home and a pilgrim is a person who is on their way home. All right? So here's what we got. We are, as Christians, as children of God, we are to be strangers and pilgrims in this world. Meaning, we are not of this world. This world is not our home, but we are on our way home. That's what the Bible tells us. As strangers and pilgrims, we are to abide as temporary citizens. 
We are to live flat out for Jesus and we are to give all to Him every day and thank Him for all He has done for us. As, as strangers and pilgrims, we can live with joy down here because we are heading up there. We are told in this verse as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. The Christian life is warfare, is it not? We must stay out of the enemy camp if we expect to win. <laughs> yes. I know we got to live in the world, but we are not to be of the world. The Billy Sunday used to say this, if you want to stop sinning, stay out of the devil's neighborhood. Amen. Yes. So... You might wonder in this verse right here, says that we're to abstain from fleshly lust. What exactly is fleshly lust? Well, we find a good list of them over in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and on says this. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath. Strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Word says. Well, we got a problem. We got a problem because we got, we got a lot of people that... We got a lot of people that, that say they're Christian and a lot of people that's in our churches that fit into all that. And, and I mean, what do you do with all that? You know? We got a problem. We got people that say they're the child, children of God, but they're not living like children of God. I, I'm telling you, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, Hatred, variance, witchcraft, emulation. Hey, we've got witchcraft going on in churches today. We've got people, pra I mean, they, they don't realize, I mean, it, it, I, don't, I don't guess they realize it, or maybe they don't care. But we've got a whole new age of mysticism in the church. We have people looking for uh, experiences and everything like that and... <laughs> It goes back to nothing but mysticism. We've got churches that are having worship services and they're doing dances just like the ancient Hindus did and, and, and calling upon spirits to enter them. And they're doing all of this in the name of the Holy Spirit. And all I know is they got a spirit all right, but it ain't holy. This is the mainstream church in America I'm talking about. I know, I know people in our Baptist churches around that drink, commit adultery. They commit idolatry. Hey, anything you put in front of God is an idol. You're committing idolatry. Anything that you see that is more important than God. Rough stuff. It ain't up for interpretation. It's what the Bible says, though. 
We're in a war. And Peter's telling us, hey, abstain from fleshly lust. It takes work to live the Christian life. It's difficult to deal with these things. You know why? Because our flesh betrays us. Our flesh lets these sins in through the gates. And Peter states that they war against the soul. Proverbs 1.10, I heard a, just a wonderful message on this verse at uh, Noah's graduation last Saturday. The Bible says, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Listen to what the Bible says about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 and on. He says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. What is that saying? He chose to live a life for God and turn his back on all of the wealth and all of the riches that he could have had temporarily. And that's the key word. He could have had all of that as Pharaoh, as Pharaoh's son, but he turned his back on it because he knew that the riches of God in eternity would be far greater than the temporary riches of this world. And we got people that don't seem to look at things that way anymore. We've got people in churches that don't look at things like that anymore. And you know what? D.L. Moody, I always remember, he said this, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any man I know. Amen. I have more trouble with myself than any man I know. Y'all being honest, you'll say amen to that. If we yield to these sinful appetites, then we'll start living like the unbelievers all around us. And we will become ineffective witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not win one battle and the war is over. It's a constant warfare. And we have to be on our guard at all times. And always remember a victory today don't guarantee a victory tomorrow. It's a constant battle. And so then, look in verse number 12, we find a conversation respected. The Bible says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. We are to conduct ourselves as strangers and pilgrims that do not give in, that do not cave in to the lust of the flesh, but instead we live for Jesus in the midst of a wicked and a perverse world. Peter's talking about living life in such a way that non-believers will take notice. We are to live all out for Jesus in this world. And conversations here, just like it is in Philippians 3.20 that I read a while ago, is referring to our way of life. Our conversation needs to edify others and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and be used to evangelize lost sinners. But life is more than just words that come out of our mouths. That's not when it says conversation. It's talking about all aspects of our life. 
our, uh, our conversation. Or here, Here's what <clears throat> Warren Wiersbe wrote about this. He said, we do not witness only with our lips. We must back up our talk with our walk. There should be nothing in our conduct that will give the unsaved ammunition to attack Christ and the gospel. Our good works must back up our good words. Yes, amen. And so moving on here in verse 12, the very next thing we see, uh, we see this conversation respected, but then we see a common resistance. Look at what it says. It says that whereas they speak against you as evildoers. See, Peter continues on and he states that there are some people who will slander you just because you're a Christian. In the early church, Christians had to deal with this problem uh, repeatedly. In the middle of the first century, Christians were a distinct minority and often were the object of slander and subsequent persecution. As a matter of fact, when they were called Christians, that was a bad word for lack of a better way to put it. It was a derogatory statement to be called a Christian. It meant something back then. It don't mean a whole lot anymore. Christian in our day is a fad. Back then it meant something. It meant you lost everything. It meant you were persecuted. It meant that it, it, it cost something to be called a Christian. The early church, they were often looked down upon and they were uh, persecuted from all sides. Their good was spoken of as evil by the Romans because the Christians would not burn incense and hail Caesar as Lord. Their good was spoken of as evil by the religious rulers and the Jews who rejected Jesus. And uh, as a matter of fact, just to give you some examples, people accused Christians of cannibalism because of Jesus giving the Lord's Supper, uh, saying, this is my body, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. They would go around, the people did, calling Christians a bunch of cannibals because they ate Jesus' flesh and drank His blood. It even went further than that, and I'll get to that in a second, but on top of this, people would accuse Christians of being sexually immoral in all areas. They would accuse them of incest and all sorts of things because they simply called their meetings every week the love feast. Yeah. Mixing this and the, the fact that they called, uh, they, they would accuse them of all, of, all this sexual immorality because uh, they had their love feast every, every week. Uh, if you mix that and then their accusations of cannibalism together, they, uh, they even went so far as accusing the Christians of killing and eating children at their love feast, which was absolutely preposterous because that's not what happened. But that's some of the persecution they would face in their days. As a matter of fact, the Romans that would call their good evil and, and uh, would persecute them because they were, would not uh, hail Caesar or uh, burn their incense, many of them died because of that, because they were treated as traitors of the empire. And... I remember at Nero, for example, when... 
There was a fire that was set in that city and burned up several things. As a matter of fact, the, uh, Nero was the one that caused the fire and then they turned around and blamed it on the Christians which fueled their persecution even more. You know, I'll just say this. The, the world still speaks against Christians as evildoers. They call us things today like intolerant. They call us bigots. They call us narrow-minded people. And the world's conversation concerning Christians is absolutely horrible. It is. Our president last fall called us a bunch of terrorists. The greatest threat. He was talking, it, it was interesting, he was talking about MAGA Republicans. But when he started explaining why MAGA Republicans was bad... He chose to particularly focus on two or three different things, and one of them was that, um, that uh, they don't believe that everybody could be married, and they don't believe that love is love, and you shouldn't step in and keep people that love each other from getting married. Uh, another thing he mentioned was that uh, those MAGA Republicans don't believe that women should have choice in their own health care, obviously referring to abortion, which he's too much of a coward to actually say. He will not use the word abortion. It's amazing. They want to call it women's health care. I call it murder. I don't classify myself as a MAGA Republican, but I am all for making America great again. And I am against, I am against all forms of murder, especially abortion. And I do believe, as my Bible tells me, and as God has written and said in His Word, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And they are two distinct sexes, male and female. The Bible says He made male and female. And uh, there isn't anything else. And so, according to our very own president last year, I am a domestic terrorist. Because I believe those things. And by the way... I still can't get over the Covenant Christian School shooting back in March over in Nashville. The rhetoric that took place after that, I, I never would have thought that our, our government always steps in and pays a visit or, or shares that their thoughts and prayers are with those victims, but our presidential administration was absolutely silent when a transgender person shot up a Christian school. If it had been anyone else, anywhere else, we wouldn't have seen the same narrative. But it blew my mind how silent our government was about this. It blew my mind how many articles and people came out showing the girl that killed those people that day, that they made her out to be a victim. The reason they did that is because she was transgender. As a matter of fact, two days after that shooting, while our president was silent about those victims, 
He made a point to announce two days after that shooting an International Transgender Awareness Visibility Day. All while saying nothing of the people that were murdered. They say she was a victim, but no, she is a murderer. She was a murderer. And there are three adults and three children dead because she murdered them. She was not a victim. The people she murdered was victims. Let's call it what it is. I get fired up about seeing what we do in our nation right now. You know, you don't get to go out and do bad stuff and say you're a victim. But that's where our society is today. You go out and do whatever you want. All they do is make excuses. It's called sin. And how do we get where we are today? It's by making excuses for sin. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's coming a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, not only for America, but the entire world. And we as Christians, you better not make your home this world. I'm going to a better place. So how are we to respond to this resistance here? Again, it goes back back to faith. It goes... I'm getting tongue twisted. It goes back to faithful, godly living. Here's what we do, Christian. You stick to what we know. We stick to what we have been told by God. We do right. We follow God. Because here's what's going to happen. We do have this resistance, but look next. There is a confounding result to the way we live. It says in verse 12, They may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now if you read that verse as a whole, look at what it says. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles here means the world, the unbelievers. And it says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil or they speak against you as evildoers, they, who's they? The Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The world. Who is that? The one speaking evil against us. What are they going to do? So they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We see a confounding result right here. The, re- the result of the world investigating the consistently godly lives of Christians is that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Not only does your life glorify God as you live it in the face of opposition, but those who oppose us will see those works and glorify God. That's what the verse says. It's by the faithful and godly lives of Christians that others are drawn to Jesus. God gets the glory when the saints are what the saints are supposed to be. 
See how this works? You see why the devil fights us so hard with those fleshly lusts? You see why he fights us so hard with doubt? If he can get us on all of that, we ain't going to be the saints that we're called to be. And we're not going to live like we're called to live. And if we don't live like we're called to live, then those who oppose us are not going to see any good works in us. As a matter of fact, going on with this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. Listen, the Bible tonight, it knows nothing of a secret and a selfish Christianity. Our faith is to be fleshed out in this watching world. William Barclay wrote, Here is a timeless truth. Whether we like it or not, all Christians are an advertisement for Christianity. By their lives, they either commend it to others or make them think less of it. The strongest missionary force in the world is the Christian life. The world watching the Christian is always going to have resistance, but let your life demonstrate the truth and confound this world. What does the Bible say right here? It says... It says that they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What exactly is the day of visitation? Well, John Phillips spoke about that. He said, God visits people and nations. And such a visitation can either be in grace or in judgment. We can't be sure which kind of visitation Peter has in mind here. Perhaps he anticipates the Lord visiting unbelievers in mercy, the godly lives of believers being used by Him as a factor in their conversion, or perhaps he envisions the Lord visiting His enemies in judgment and using the good lives of His people as an added item in their indictment. Either way, those who are visited will be forced to acknowledge the goodness of God's people and thus bring glory to God. Amen. Either way, whether the visitation is now, whether it's later, whether it's at the end of all time, when the second coming, one way or the other, the Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christian life is a big deal tonight. Church is bigger than you think it is. Our godly lives, they make a difference. We're affecting the world one way or the other, whether you like it or not. So my question tonight is, are our lives, is, is your life making a difference in bringing glory to God? Do our lives bring shame and reproach on the name of Jesus and the cause of Christ or let me ask you this, who exactly are you living for today? I said a while ago, the Bible knows nothing of a selfish Christianity, but yet, we've got a lot of selfish Christians out there. How is it with you tonight? Are you living for yourself or are you living for God? When people look at your life, are they seeing Jesus? Are they seeing the light that shines from within? Or are you bringing a reproach upon His name? Let's stand and bow our heads, close our eyes tonight. This altar's open. If you ain't been living right, then you ought to come get on this altar for a little while tonight.